You may be seated. Continuing our uh, study today through uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're in uh, Mark chapter 1. And uh, starting there in uh, verse 29, you can follow along right there in your bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Uh, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And he went out and began uh, to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly uh, enter a town but was out in uh, desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and uh, we open our hearts to you now that uh, you would uh, teach us, open our minds to understand this word, apply this word to our lives, and and ultimately lead us to Jesus, that we might know his love more deeply and uh, trust in him, become like him, obey him. Um, uh, We thank you uh, that you've called us your beloved children, and so teach us now, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our topic uh, today is solitude, about the uh, dynamic between uh, spending time alone with God and a life of activity, of community and productivity and work and and community and all these things. And uh, the passage I just read to you comes in the midst of a flurry of activity uh, in the life of our Lord, uh, in, the, in the passage right before the one I just read, uh, the whole town of Capernaum had brought all their sick and their demon-possessed people to Jesus to have them healed and to be cared for. And then in this passage, Jesus takes his disciples to all the surrounding towns to go and preach to them. And so right in the middle of all this activity, um, we have this great line about the life of Jesus. In verse 35, it says, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus, in the middle of much to do, spends time alone with his Father, which says to us that we can't live, we can't serve God without solitude. Solitude, you know, even Jesus says in in John chapter 5, I can do nothing on my own. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. If he can do nothing on his own without solitude with his Father, how much less can we do nothing without solitude with God? And uh, so the question for you and you and me today is, 
is solitude a part of our life? And by solitude, I don't mean just being alone and kind of zoning out on Netflix and just kind of getting my mind off my work or the anxieties of my life. We are flooded with stimulation. But by solitude, I mean communion alone with God. And I've had many people tell me that one of the reasons solitude is hard for them is because when, once you get all the distractions out, then they're forced to deal with their own thoughts and their own hearts and with God. And it's like, you know, I'm not sure I want to deal with my own hearts and thoughts. And, uh, but if they are not processed with God in prayer and with his word, they're, they're not faced. And who we are is, is really not faced. And so being alone with God is an essential com- component to human health. And so today we're going to answer three questions about solitude from Mark chapter 1. And these, these are our three questions. How do you do solitude? What are the obstacles to solitude? And what effect does solitude have on us? What are the, what are, you know, how does it change us? And so uh, how do you do solitude? What are the obstacles to solitude? And, and what effect does it have on us? And, and my hope is, you know, we're at the beginning of a new year and we're thinking about our, uh, our lives and how we live our lives. Is time alone with God carved out in your life? So three questions today. And the first is this. How do you do solitude? And there are two simple principles that I think you can't ignore if, if solitude is going to be a regular part of your life. There, I think there's two principles from this passage I want to point out. And the first is that solitude happens when it is dark outside. Solitude happens when it's dark outside. And you see that in verse 35 and it says, And rising early in the morning while it was still dark. That is when Jesus spent time in 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 prayer, spent time with God. It was when it's dark outside. And you might read that verse that Jesus had a pattern of he gets up early in the morning and spends time uh, in prayer with his father. And, I, you know, I'm a morning person. I appreciate that reading of this text that I like having my coffee and Bible, you know, when it's quiet and no one's up yet. And that's where much of my relationship with God has been forged is, is in those hours. And my experience is most people who have solitude in their lives do it in the morning. But that's definitely not the rule. I'd say maybe 75%. That's just a guess. But uh, other people who have solitude, if they don't do it early in the morning, they usually do it at night. After the activity of the day has settled in and maybe everyone else has gone to bed and it's quiet and they're, you know, maybe some of your morning people or night, night people. And actually, I was just listening to a podcast recently with uh, Joel Beakey, who's a very prolific theologian and he's a pastor and a seminary professor, and he says, you know, I sleep in pretty much every morning. I don't do stuff early in the morning, but he stays up into the dark hours at night, and that's where he has deep reflection and communion with God. It's in the dark when things are dark. And actually, the Greek text of this verse literally says that very early at night he rose. It's not really clear if this is in the morning. It's sometime in the middle of the night that Jesus is with his father. And there are several places in the Psalms where it says uh, this kind of thing um, about communion and meditation with God at night. For example, Psalm 16 says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. Or Psalm 63 says, I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Why is the Bible always saying that at night people have communion with God? One reason, 
you know, some of you, if you struggle with anxiety and you wake up in the middle of the night and your thoughts get going and you know that you sometimes have an hour or two where you're, the things that are troubling you come up when all the activity is gone and you're just in bed and it's dark. And I think the psalmist is saying that's when you talk to God. And those are the things that you probably need to talk to him about are the things that are running through your mind at two in the morning. But actually, I, I read uh, somewhere once that in, in pre-modern culture, there's some evidence that, um, that before there were light bulbs, you know, people went to bed earlier because it was darker, and uh, that a lot of cultures, people would wake up in the middle of the night and they'd have like an hour or two where it was kind of a time to connect and you'd just sit in your bed and you'd sit up and you'd light a candle and everyone would talk and the kids would come into bed at two in the morning and you spend an hour together and then you go back to sleep until morning. And maybe it was that time when people would say, this is a time to pray. It's a time where we're together and, and no one's around. But the communion and solitude with God, there is something in the Bible that happens when it's dark outside. And so that's the, that's the first principle. The second principle we see in this passage is that solitude happens in a desolate place. You know, where it kind of a void place where there's not much happening. And you see that verse 35, it says, In rising very early in the morning while it was still dark... Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And so this is like the desert or the wilderness. This is the same kind of place after Jesus was baptized and the Spirit drove him into the wilderness for 40 days to be you know, tempted by the devil. And so that's the desolate place that Jesus is going there again where his big spiritual battle with temptation happened in this place of solitude where all the distractions are stripped away, which I think is an important insight that if you have sins, Things in your life that need to be faced and dealt with, if you are not doing that with solitude, time and prayer and with God, like how could we imagine overcoming the sins that plague us without spending time with God and His Word alone? Jesus' great battle with temptation happened in the place of solitude. Galatians tells us that the spirit and the flesh are waging war within us. This is... Uh, and it's in the desolate place where Jesus found that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. And, it, you know, in the his, in, uh, historically, Christians have sought out desolate places to meet with God. So, for example, some of the, the uh, most profound leaders in the early church in the third century of the Roman Empire, you know, the Christian church was growing in the Roman Empire, and the desert fathers went out into the desert in Egypt, and they started these communities out in the desert. And they were, they were there to meet with God. And they had a huge impact on the Christians in the centuries after them. The, the Benedictine uh, monks who started monasteries all over Western Europe uh, followed the lead of these desert fathers. And you say, well, why do they go into the desert? What's in the desert? Nothing. That's why. There's no work. There's no people. There's no email. There's no distraction. There is only God himself. And that is what they wanted was to encounter God himself. And one of the things that strikes me about the, the desert or a desolate place is it's a place not of productivity or importance. You know, the desert fathers were leaving the places of importance in the Roman Empire. They were leaving the culture. They were leaving the cities. And many people would look at them going and living in the desert saying, you're just wasting your life. What are you going to do out in the desert just wasting your life? And I think that... There is a wastefulness to solitude. Um, and I think that's part of its mystery. Uh, one of the, the best thinkers about solitude that I've read, Henry Nouwen has a little book called Out of Solitude that I've read 
several times. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest who was a writer and speaker, and he was a professor. And he, at one point in his life, decided to leave the circuit of speaking that he was on and writing. And he went and he lived at a community called Lark, which was a community of Christians with disabilities who lived together. And he lived among them as their priest. And all these, you know, the people in this community did not care what books he'd read, what accomplishments he'd had, or what universities he'd taught at. All they cared about was, are you going to be at lunch today? You know, and you can eat with me. Like, they were unimpressed with his accomplishments. And he went and lived among them. And he, and he wrote this book called Out of Solitude. And there's a great um, parable that he, he gives in the book. And I want to read it to you. This is a little parable. He says, A carpenter and his apprentice were walking together through a large forest. And when they came across a tall, huge, gnarled, old, beautiful oak tree, the carpenter asked his apprentice, do you know why this tree is so tall, so huge, so gnarled, so old and beautiful? The apprentice looked at his master and said, no, why? Well, the carpenter said, because it is useless. If it had been useful, it would have been cut long ago and made into tables and chairs. But because it is useless, it could grow so tall and so beautiful that you can sit in its shade and relax. There's a seemingly useless part of our life that makes us gnarled and strange and beautiful. And, you know, some of you might say, I can look at that over the course. There are years of my life, maybe decades of my life, that I'm like, that felt useless. What was God doing with all that? And it's those useless times that make us all gnarled and weird and individual and strange, but actually a blessing to people. And solitude is that way. It has a certain wastefulness. When you go out into the desert place where there's nothing important there, there's no activity, there's no productivity, God does something mysterious in us. And so how do you do solitude? Well, the two answers are solitude happens when it is dark outside and the hours when there's no activity happening and second, solitude happens in the desolate place, stripped away of productivity and the important or the urgent. And it almost feels like wasted time, but in that wasted time, God makes us gnarled and beautiful. So this leads to our second question then. If that's when solitude happens, well, what are the obstacles to solitude? And I'm reluctant to use the word obstacles because both of the obstacles that I'm going to point out are actually not bad things. I mean, for someone like me, I love solitude. I love being alone. I could read and study for a week and I'd be happy. And so the Lord, I need obstacles, like dis things disrupting my solitude and pushing me to, you know, uh, be with people and to do things that are helpful. And... Uh, and so two obstacles that we, there are two obstacles that we see in our Lord's solitude in this passage. And the first obstacle is interruptions. Interruptions to our solitude. And what we see in this passage is our Savior is, is uh, interrupted in his prayer time with his Father. In verse 36 it says, In Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. I just picture Jesus saying, I know everyone's looking for me. Why do you think I came out in the desert where no one was around? I'm trying to get away from the crowds of people who want me to heal them and preach to them. And yet when you read in this passage, there's not an ounce of annoyance from Jesus being disrupted from his meditation and prayer time and contemplation with God. And I think that that's because he embraced the interruption. 
And, you know, if you're a, a mother with young children, you understand the obstacle of interruption to solitude. I, I remember when our kids were little, we had, we had five kids in, in five years, and my wife wanted so desperately some time alone, and she would wake up in the morning, and she would do whatever she could to be totally silent. She'd open the doors very slowly and step on tiptoes, and she would get to her couch, you know, with her coffee and her Bible, and the moment she opened her Bible, a child would cry out, you know, that they needed something and start crying, and she's like, it's the devil. The devil's waking up my children and doesn't want me to spend time with God, and, you know, it could be the devil, um, but it turns out that there are um, uh, many spiritual writers have talked about these interruptions to our solitude. And they've said, even if it is the devil, the Lord uses them. The Lord has purpose in them. And I want to share with you a couple of what a couple writers have said about it. The first is Henry Nouwen, who I already mentioned. And he talks about one of his professors at Notre Dame who told him, I've always been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted. You know, he's, he wants to write and he wants to think and students are coming in and bothering him. Until I slowly discovered that my interruptions were my work. And now one goes on to explain, that is the great conversion in our life to recognize and believe that the many unexpected events are not just disturbing interruptions of our projects, but the way in which God molds our hearts and prepares us for his return. The way God works in our life is through interruption. Inserting things that we did not ask for or did not want or were not planning on is contrary to our plans. And God does not want us to just have lives of tranquil contemplation. Uh, you know, contemplation can be very self-indulgent. And it can be very self-righteous, too. I know I'm that way. I'm reading my Bible and I'm being, you know, but I want quiet and I don't want anyone bothering me. And it's like the Lord knows that is my flesh that wants to be served. And so the way the Lord gives death to the self is through interruptions. You do not get your way. And so that's one, one thing that, uh, that uh, Nouwen says. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer also writes about interruptions in his book, Life Together. This is what he says. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans and sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by preoccupied with our more important tasks. It is a strange fact that Christians and even ministers frequently, frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they are doing God's service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. And so the first obstacle to solitude is interruption. And it may come from the devil, but the Lord has purposes in it, to disrupt that our solitude would just serve us and be about us, okay? The second obstacle is activity. There are things that we have to do in life, and you just can't have a life of, of contemplation. And Jesus, you know, moves out of his time of prayer pretty quickly into doing things. Uh, you see in verse 39, and he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons, and a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And so Jesus has this kind of rhythm of contemplation and activity. And I think that probably all of us tend towards one of those, you know. Some of us are contemplative. We like to read and be alone and to pray. And, you know, maybe, maybe you're more introverted. I don't know. And then other people 
uh, like activity. I like to feel useful. I like to feel like I'm making things for people or doing things for things. I'm building things. I'm using my hands. And uh, St. Augustine, who is a, the bishop of Hippo, Hippo is a town in North Africa, and um, and you know, being a bishop is a real mixture of these two things because you have to have, be an intellectual and you have to be a spiritual example. But you also have all these churches that are getting started and you've got to appoint priests and you've got to make sure everyone's being cared for. And so uh, Augustine, about 700 pages into his City of God, which is a great masterpiece. You know, maybe he's thinking he's spending too much time on contemplation. This is what he says. No man has a right to lead such a life of contemplation as to forget in his own ease, the service due his neighbor. Nor has any man a right to be so immersed in active life as to neglect the contemplation of God. And so whichever you tend towards, the Lord is going to be pushing you into the other one. And so if you're like, you know, I'm a person of contemplation, the Lord's going to put, he's going to disrupt it and aggravate it so that you have to go serve and help people and be useful. And some of you say, you know, I'm just always doing stuff and helping things. The Lord is going to push you in. I need to learn contemplation. I need to learn to sit and be with God. I need to learn to pray and to meditate on his word. And that's challenging for me, but that's going to be a part of my Christian life to learn, to learn that. So which one are you? Which one do you tend towards? Which one is hard for you to incorporate into your life? And maybe that's the one that needs the focus because the other one is so natural. So what we see is that solitude, which happens in the dark and in the desolate place, is essential to our health as disciples of Jesus. But it is disrupted with obstacles, interruptions, and important activity in our lives. And both of these interruptions are from the Lord. And so that leads to our final question is, is what effect does solitude have on us? What does it do to us? How does solitude change us? And, and again, I'd like to point out two things from this passage. Um, the first is that solitude forms our deepest convictions. It is in solitude that we form the deepest things that we believe in. And, and you know, Jesus came out of his solitude ready to preach. He had something to say. You see what it says verse 38. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. That's why I came out. Something was stirring in Jesus when he was with his father that there's something that people, there's something in the language of how he was going to say it and the burden of what he was going to say was being formed there. And I remember, um, you know, this past summer I was at a, our denomination's general assembly in St. Louis. I was meeting with an older pastor who I really look up to. His name is George Grant. And he was asking about how he does his pastoral ministry, and he was talking about writing uh, sermons. And he said, you know, a sermon you can't write in a week. Sermons are, come from, you know, 20 years of solitude, where in that time, convictions and beliefs and the time together of God's Word is formed in a person. And, you know, if you're a Christian, you're going to have to make many decisions in your life that are going to need to be principled. That you have reflected enough to know, I know what I believe in. And I, I know what God's word says. And I think about how that impacts my life. That, those kind of convictions only come from periods of reflection. Where you've had time to stop and say, what do I really believe? What does God's word really say? And uh, my final quote from Henry Nouwen. This is, what he, this is how he begins his book on solitude. He says, somewhere we know... That without a lonely place, 
Our lives are in danger. Somewhere we know that without silence, words lose their meaning. That without listening, speaking no longer heals. That without distance, closeness cannot cure. Somewhere we know that without a lonely place, that's the desolate place where all the distraction is turned away and we are only with God. Without that lonely place, our actions quickly become empty gestures. The careful balance between silence and words, withdrawal and involvement, distance and closeness, solitude and community forms the basis of the Christian life and should therefore be the subject of our most personal attention. What he says is to become a person of depth. That only happens in these quiet places of reflection to bring that depth into our community, into our relationships. And so what does solitude do is solitude... uh, it's solitude that forms our, our deepest convictions. But, but there's, there's one other thing that solitude does that I want to point out. Is that solitude teaches us to rely on God and not on ourselves. And some of you, when you hear what I've just described about solitude, you might hear the opposite thing. Because you'd say, well, it sounds like you're saying, i got to get up early. i got to study the Bible. i got to pray more. And it sounds like I need to become a more disciplined person. That doesn't sound really like relying on God. That sounds like I better be more disciplined. And, uh, and, you know, I think this passage has a couple answers to that. And the first is that when Jesus goes off to the desolate place to pray, who's he praying for? Probably the disciples who slept in. <laughs> He's praying for them. And when we think about this passage, who are we in the passage? Are we the Son of God who has eternal communion with his Father? Or are we the disciples who are learning from Jesus to become like him, but who slept in and weren't in the desolate place. That's, that's who we are. And, uh, and Jesus prays for them in quiet. And the fact is, you know, all of us have so many things that we should be praying for that we're not. But guess who is? There is nothing in your life that's getting left unprayed for. Jesus, the Bible says, is in heaven at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. There's no part of your life that's left untouched by his prayers. He is covering the failure of our solitude with his profound and deep solitude. And in fact, you know, in this passage, there are actually two people praying. And one is Jesus who's praying. And you might say, you know, the Son of God is maybe ambitious for me as a model to try to pray like him. Well, maybe the other model is, is more realistic, and he's in verse 40. You see it, it says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. That sounds a lot like prayer. He's imploring him and kneeling. That's what we do. We kneel in prayer, and he's asking Jesus what he needs. And the thing I love about this prayer is how short it is. If you will, you can make me clean. This prayer is not long or complicated, and yet it strikes at the deepest question in the human heart. Is Jesus, are you willing to help me? And the purpose of solitude is not to prove your spiritual maturity. It is simply to find the answer to that simple question, Jesus, are you willing to heal me and make me clean? And I love that, you know, that's, I feel like the kind of prayers when we have the deepest sorrows in our lives, the prayers are short. They're like breaths. Lord, help me. Lord, I don't even know what to say. Please be kind to me. It's like what this leper says. 
And in the dark and in the desolate place, when you can only pray a short prayer like that because of the many interruptions and the activity that we must attend to, what answer will you find? Is God reluctant to help you? Does he only listen to those who have spent hours proving their devotion to him? What will he say, uh, what will he say to the one who, like this leper, cannot rely on his own power? And my only hope for us in solitude is that in solitude we would experience Jesus' heart. The heart that he gives to this leper. Look at verse 41, these amazing words. This is what you'll find. Even if you only have a breath of a prayer, this is what you'll find from Jesus. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. There is really only one deep conviction that needs to be formed in our hearts. And it's the conviction that takes a lifetime to learn, and it's this, that Jesus is willing. He is not against you. His desire is for your good. Friends, I invite you in, into the dark and desolate place of solitude for this one reason only, that you might experience Jesus' willing heart toward you. And knowing that willing heart in an anxious world filled with distraction, you might find rest. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for these simple passages in the gospel and in even just a verse where our Lord goes to speak with you and to commune with you. And Lord, we long to be drawn into that love of God the Father and God the Son. We long to know that love and security. And Lord, we see how frail we are like the disciples. We're so grateful that Jesus prays over us. But we pray that you would draw us in and train us in that solitude. That you would assure us of the deep love of Jesus, that he is willing. He's not begrudging us. He doesn't expect long prayers from us. But you hear our simple faith. And so, Lord, uh, teach us to be with you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.